One, two, three. Just give me patience. Yeah. All right, Z-Pack, it's your boy ZDogMD, AKA Dr. Zubin Nemanja. Today we have a really, really, really special guest and a really important topic. We have Dr. Hernan Gomez. Uh, he is associate professor uh, at University of Michigan. He is trained in emergency medicine, pediatrics, and toxicology, a triple threat as we call it. And he has recently been the lead author on a really fascinating study looking at the Flint lead levels. And if you recall from the news, this has been all over the news that uh, Flint's water was contaminated with high levels of lead. And are we destroying a generation of young people with lead poisoning? Today, we're going to get into the science of that. We're going to get into how we communicate risk and statistics to the public. And was this um, issue communicated well to the public or have we maybe done potentially a disservice? Uh, Dr. Hernan Gomez, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us. It's a pleasure, Dr. Z. Nice to meet. Very nice to meet you. Man, you look like a professor. White coat, charts. It's amazing. Uh, it's amazing what props can do over here. <laughs> <laughs> We're all about props on the show. So yeah, let, let, like, this is a fake beard. It, yeah, way. fake beard. <laughs> Maybe I should get one. I love it. Um, so you know when. When I started looking into the, the Flint-led uh, 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 public health issues, I, I actually learned quite a bit, starting with uh, the effects of lead on developing brains and, and things like that. Uh, with the lead levels that we are discussing here in, in terms of the Flint area, uh, we're really focusing more on uh, IQ, uh, uh, intelligence level, uh, and uh, uh, capacity for school and so forth. So. You know, the thing about the Flint story is that it's so loaded politically and emotionally because you have issues around social justice. You have a predominantly lower income, uh, largely African-American population in a Rust Belt town that has seen so much sort of struggle and disadvantage. And then when it hits the news that, well, hmm, here's a situation where the water supply was changed. Now we have high levels of lead. We're potentially damaging irreversibly with lead the IQs and the development of these already disadvantaged children. You could see why it could, could create such outrage and emotionally charged uh, response in the press that continues to this day. Now the question is, you know, in your interpretation, what was the story? How did it unfold in Flint so we can get our viewers up to speed for people who don't know? If I may make a quick comment, so uh, you mentioned Roger and me. I, I saw Roger and me when I was, uh, if I may say, an internal medicine resident. I actually, I'm born in internal medicine as well. But wow. uh, internal medicine resident, I saw Roger and me. It's a, it's a fantastic uh, documentary. But I, I said to myself, this is the saddest city in the country. And, and I think that Flint had that image even prior to the water crisis. And I do think that that backdrop was part of why there was an ex this explosion of events. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Flint already had this uh, backdrop. I think uh, Roger and me was, was perhaps uh, uh, part of that. But uh, uh, depressed city, a post-industrial city, um, uh, there uh, was the switch to the river water. There was, as is uh, very famously aware, the, a change in color of the water, spell of the water, folks protesting, uh, seemingly uh, not exactly an immediate response coming uh, from governmental resources or, or from, from gov governmental services. 
then uh, Mark Edwards uh, uh, or Leanne Waters, uh, this, uh, a mother in Flint, famously contacted him through internet. He sent over 300 graduate students to uh, check bottled water samples. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing at some point he communicated with pediatricians in Flint and uh, they communicated with the state. Uh, the state's initial reaction was to rebuff them. Uh, and uh, the, the, thing, the logic at the time, as I understand it, was that, well, we need to go to the media. It's much too important not to. And after going to the media within about, uh, I think, less than two weeks, the, the government said, you're right, we're backing off. And, uh, and they, they proceeded to mitigate, uh, uh, mitigate the water crisis after that. Got it. And my understanding of this, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the uh, original source of water for Flint was Lake Huron through the Detroit Water Authority. Correct. And then they switched to the Flint River. And something in the composition of Flint River was more potentially corrosive to lead-containing fixtures in pipes. This is the theory. And it wasn't treated appropriately. So as a result, lead levels rose in the water that was delivered to the residents. Is that a correct summary? That is correct. Uh, the word corrosive, uh, one thinks of acid and base, right? Especially medical toxicology, you're drinking a caustic substance. It wasn't corrosive in that manner. Mm. I may say so for a second. So Boulder, Colorado is, is perhaps the only city that actually water is supplied by glacial water. Glacial water. It's corrosive. Why is it corrosive? Because it's soft water, and basically what it does is it leaches out minerals and pipes. So it's, it's corrosive in the sense that uh, they, the, the Flint uh, 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 Water Authority or uh, the, uh, those that were in control of making the switchover uh, should have placed in simple orthophosphates. Uh, it's simply a chemical use, very inexpensive. And it's not an acid or base issue. It's simply a matter of it being uh, uh, likely to simply take the, these uh, years of sediment and piping and cause it to disengage and go and go flow, flow, uh, flow straight into drinking water. Got it. And and so there was a doctor, uh, Dr. Hannah Atisha, who sort of famously started to note that she was seeing elevated blood lead levels in children. And the American Academy of Pediatrics has recommended blood lead uh, screening in children who are at risk, lower income, and older housing, et cetera. Uh, how, how did that play out? Uh, well, uh, the uh, first of all, uh, lead levels are mandated by the CDC for all Medicaid patients. About 80% of children in Flint are Medicaid patients. So mm -hmm. the CDC uh, recommends, the guidelines are that they all have uh, capillary screens and if they're positive, venous samples of lead between the ages of one and five and to have it repeated if, if it is elevated. Uh, so, so there was a, a big database to look into, and essentially, uh, after uh, uh, the uh, water was reported to have uh, been have elevated lead, uh, the databases uh, were looked into. I believe that uh, her study looked in 2013, uh, prior to switchover, compared to eight and a half months of 2015, and found an, in uh, an increase in the percentage above the CDC reference range of five micrograms per deciliter. Got it. So now this is interesting because this is where we have to start talking a little bit in the weeds about statistics and what they're really reporting. Yes, it's a rather interesting issue, actually. Yeah. So it seems to me what they were looking at is a percentage of children who exceeded the CDC threshold for what they consider 
unsafe levels of lead, even though there really isn't a known safe level of lead. And so the percentage of kids who now exceeded this doubled. So in other words, going from 2% who exceeded the five deciliter range to 4%. Is that correct? That, that's, that's correct. Mm -hmm. and, that's, mm -hmm. oh, and, and, and the understanding then is that the way the, that was sort of communicated through the press is that lead levels doubled in these children. Is that what actually happened? Well, communicated in the press was that children were poisoned. Mm -hmm. uh, it doubled and children were poisoned. I think those two messages came out. And uh, the, uh, so, uh, so the, what, uh, what was looked at was the percentage of children that exceeded the CDC reference range of five micrograms per deciliter. Uh, the CDC, the reference level is never meant to be a, a, a clear threshold of when children are poisoned. The CDC, and as written by the CDC within their own publications, are that it was meant uh, simply to be a, a reference point uh, for which to identify groups, population groups, not even a single child, population groups and sectors within the country that are at high risk and, and, and deserve more resources, mm. mitigation uh, to investigate why these children are high. It was, it was never meant to be a definitive statement of poisoning. And I think that this is a, a, uh, a miscalculation or misstatement that should be corrected. And that's what uh, one thing I hope to do with, with uh, the publication uh, from General Pedi of Pediatrics. And, and this is a great transition because when I learned about this, my understanding of this changed so profoundly because I also was looking at the press and thinking, okay, there's no safe level of lead. Now the percentage of kids that are above five, which is the CDC's threshold, which by the way has been lowered over the years. It used to be 10 and then it went down to five. And again, as the CDC sort of evolves and that threshold, as you mentioned, is, is, is a population health sort of guideline, not an individual. In other words, after you get above five, it doesn't suddenly mean your IQ plummets or some threshold is reached. If, if I may, so as long as we're playing that, you're going back to the, through, uh, walk through the history of the CDC reference range. So the height of the Flint population was 200,000 in 1960. And the reference range in 1960 was 100 micrograms per deciliter. Wow. In 1960. And uh, that was when Flint was truly at its peak and, and truly the envy of the nation and, and truly a motor of the, of the middle class. And by the way, the birthplace of General Motors. Uh, when I began a pediat as a pediatric resident um, in 1983, the reference range of the CDC was 25. And, and, and part of why I knew that... Uh, Perhaps uh, there were some interpretations that were slightly uh, taken out of context uh, were that I remember I had distinct memories of going to mothers and giving them the fine, wonderful good news that their child's blood level is only 20 and therefore their child is going to be just fine. Wow. And 20 would be uh, considered uh, quite unacceptable now. Right. Yes. Right. And, and, and one other interesting point about this, to put it in context, and again, we're kind of talking about how do you communicate risk and statistics and danger to the public in a scientific way? If you're looking at lead, you want to kind of step back and go, well, before the mid-70s, and I was born in 1973, most people in, in the U.S., most kids in the U.S., about 83% had lead levels around 
10 micrograms at least, right? Is that correct? So your mother's blood level was likely in the 15 range when 15. she was pregnant with you. Uh, there's, a, there's a ratio of the fetus to the mother of 0.9. So if you multiply 0.9 times 15, and I don't have the calculator in front of me, I would say it's roughly 12 to 13. Likely you, Dr. Z, as a developing fetus, were being bathed and blood circulated within your developing brain was around 13, therefore exceeding the reference range of 5, therefore you are permanently brain damaged. I just want to inform you of that. The kids in Flint had lower blood levels than I had uh, growing up, and I remember leaded gasoline, I remember leaded paint. And these, the, the, some of the biggest public health advantages were getting rid of those things and the regulations around that. But now we've cre there's, there's a massive crisis over uh, blood levels that are more around five, and that's just in a small part of the population. And that was from the original sort of data that came out uh, around the Flint crisis. This is correct. Uh, so, so this paper is not about belittling those in Flint. I mean, to be very, very careful, and also, the, and we, we need to return again. There is, there is no known safe lead level. Right. This is all about placing things in context, and it is about what is appropriate use of statistics, and it, and it is about what is appropriate communication to the media, to the community. In, in, in a way that's responsible. So if I may, going back to the original study uh, of the American Journal of Public Health, so the, the, the number of children, if you look at the end, if you pull that paper, there are uh, approximately 800 children studied in 2013, approximately 800 something in uh, 2015. So just so you know, the number, the, the total number of children that crossed that threshold was only 18. Mm. That's it. Mm -hmm. So, so 18 more children crossed the threshold of five micrograms per deciliter, and that caused that 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 quote doubling effect, as you mentioned, uh, two to four percent. Right. Now, is that a, a a public health catastrophe? Well, I you know, it uh, it uh, des certainly deserves looking into. It deserves mitigation. All, all the correct things occurred uh, once, once this came out. And I, I'm very pleased to report that, and I think it. Uh, uh, it uh, is important that the, uh, the authorities uh, did the correct things, as they ultimately did. Yeah. And let me back up for a second, because I want to reiterate some of the things you said. Everything we're talking about here is in no way to say that what happened was appropriate or that the people there weren't the victims of an injustice. What we're saying is that the way that you'd sort of describe a health crisis really has to be put in context. And the context here is that and we're gonna see from the data of your study, lead levels have been declining consistently over the years, including in Flint. There are areas of Michigan with higher lead levels, and that I myself uh, was probably bathed in levels of lead that were quite a bit higher than the levels that uh, were of concern in Flint. So we need to contextualize it, but we also need to learn that yes, the water situation wasn't uh, done properly. Yes, it put people at risk. And yes, there were other issues like Legionnaires that were linked potentially uh, to the river water. So that all being said now, I wanna transition into the work that you did to look back actually at a database uh, retrospectively in this study that was just released in uh, the Journal of Pediatrics, and I don't think it's in print yet, but it's still uh, online, is that correct? It is online for free. You may go to jps.com and download it for free. And we will put the link uh, in the description for this video where you can read the, the raw article and an interesting editorial uh, uh, that's attached to it. Which is also uh, maybe downloadable uh, free of charge. 
Exactly, and that's by a doc at uh, Oklahoma University where I just was actually talking about uh, contextualizing how we communicate risk uh, through, the, through the public and what the study might actually mean. Um, now, you went back and said, okay, from 2006 until 2016, we actually have access to blood lead level measurements uh, as with Epic and starting in 2012. And, and now remembering you practice at the epicenter of this in Hurley. Uh, yes. So, so ex explain to me what you did. Uh, it, it was it was let's say it was an epic journey, <laughs> epic was, but Epic was the beginning of it. So yeah. Epic was introduced at, at Hurley in 2012. And my uh, condolences. So, I'm sorry. My condolences. Oh, well, <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, so uh, what Epic? One advantage Epic does have is one can query fairly rapidly uh, lead levels and so forth. Uh, uh, but uh, it, it ends there. Then we had to go to legacy databases. And Hurley is not a wealthy hospital. I mean, Hurley, uh, uh, we were really had to go to legacy da databases dating back to the 1980s. But we were able to uh, find databases through the laboratory back to 2000, uh, Janu January of 2005. Uh, and from there, go to a second database, and I have to give credit to the informatics people, but we're able to somehow match up addresses, blood levels, date of blood draw, date of birth, combine all of them. One second, can you close the door? Okay. Uh, combine all of them, geocode, make certain that these individuals lived within the boundary of Flint, and they were, in fact, get, receiving the Flint water switch, the change. Yeah. So it was, it was, we were basically... Uh, opened up the attic of medical records of Flint when we opened up some dusty old musty chests, knocked off some cobwebs, and through a little bit of, little bit of a pluck and luck, uh, we managed to get back to 2006. Got it. So all the way back to 2006, and you looked at blood lead levels, and you looked both at the percentage of people who exceeded this threshold of five, which is one measurement, and then you looked at the geometric mean of actual blood lead levels. Correct. Yeah, and looking at that, you found some really fascinating data. And I think, and, and I'll let you describe it more, but I'll just kind of summarize and you tell me how wrong I am as a hospitalist who knows very little about anything. So starting in 2006, the levels, uh, 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 both of percentage of people who exceed the threshold of five uh, micrograms per deciliter of lead that CDC has, has set, and the geometric mean of actual blood lead level concentrations have declined substantially year over year from 2006, which I consider a modern era. That is, I re 2006, I mean, Usher had done clear. I mean, had done, had done yeah, uh, just a couple years earlier with I consider that a new song, even though it's like 15 years old. And since then, they've declined year over year with a couple of glitches. 2010 to 2011, there was a small bump, but it was, but it, but it was there. And then 2014 to 15, the year right after the Flint water shift, there was another bump. But despite that, the overall line has been down, and those two bumps were actually within statistical probability of just being a random event. In other words, they weren't statistically significant. Okay, there we go. I'll read, okay, I'll try to. It's a bit glary. I don't know. If no, this is perfect. I can point to this. Um, so one can see that there is one year in 2006 or seven, there was, but this did not reach statistical significance. So the P was like 0.1. Got it. Uh, 
Then we see between 2010 to 2011, the geometric mean uh, increased by 0.12 micrograms per deciliter. And then this is during the water switch. The water switch here is 2014-2015. It increased uh, 0.11 micrograms per deciliter. This is a linear trend line R-square. And what this means, the calculation is 0.94. This is very important because what this means is that all of these curves below and above the line, that there is a 94% chance that all these changes were random. Yeah. That's that. So we're not going to make a debate here about what caused uh, this increase during a a water uh, uh, crisis years, but the, the changes were no more than, it would be impossible to distinguish what occurred during a change of water crisis years to what would be a random event. Now, the, the 2010 to 2011 was years prior to the uh, Flint water change. Okay, so let me, let me summarize this. This is really kind of remarkable data. What we're ultimately saying is that looking at actual blood lead levels, there's a 94% chance that this little bit of bump uh, year over year around the Flint water crisis was due to chance. And if you look at the absolute values, they are still lower in 2015 when the lead levels bumped than they were in 2012. They're much lower. They're much lower. Much lower, yeah. They're about 50, uh, over 50% uh, uh, lower. Now. This says nothing about where is the lead bump potentially coming from, if it's real. It's not saying if the people of uh, Flint were not affected by this in any sort of uh, way by the, by the lead. What it's saying is if you look at the pure data, if you look at the pure statistics and you analyze it in a rational way using uh, uh, statistical methods that are very proven, this is what you see is overall public health efforts to decrease lead in the Flint area have over, the, over time been effective very effective. Like what's the take home? Uh, so actually that, that's a great question. So so we all know that Flint has been a down and out community for, for quite some time. We all know that in my view, Flint may very well be the saddest city in the country. And this is prior to this water issue. Uh, the point of, the, of myself and the co-authors in the study is that Flint does not need more stigmatization to the community nor do the children need more, because that's inaccurate. Uh, we, the, the issue of uh, the, uh, using the word poisoned is an incorrect word. It's, it, it conti- there continues to be uh, many people across the country, health care workers, professionals, lay folks, who believe that there's an entire co-generation lost. Mm. And the generation loss was, was a term that was used quite excessively. If I may show you this, this little one here, can you see this here? Mm. But it's Poisoning the children of Flint. But from a certain Amanda, this is after Syria was bombed because of the use of sarin gas. And a nice Amanda from Worcester uh, wrote, uh, shouldn't Syria be bombing us because we poisoned the children in Flint? Yeah. And this came out just... Uh, just recently. So this is out of Worcester, Massachusetts. And this is, uh, these are the images. We had a graduate student uh, from Finland who was staying with us in our home. And the parents became very concerned because this reached international news during the time of the the water switch. This is a Finnish newspaper headline. 
and she and and, and uh, the, her parents called our house asking if if uh, her uh, if their daughter was okay if she was being poisoned over here in Michigan. Well, so as, yeah, so well, as you can see, things are horribly out of context, and things need to be corrected. We have no evidence that children, uh, that in, as a general rule, Flint uh, were uh, children were poisoned. With one caveat, we as co-authors did not do a physical exam on every single child in Flint, so we can't claim to make an overreaching statement like that. So, so okay. Let, let me unpack some of this because you know this is a charged issue. It's it's controversial. Looking at it purely from a scientific standpoint. This, we've talked about this now. Now the question is, are we stigmatizing the children of Flint forever? Are we diverting attention from their a real important plight as well, which is education, social determinants of health, safety, violence, those kind of issues that affect their health and the health of many Americans more than what we're seeing here? And are we uh, miscommunicating science to the public, even though there wasn't potentially an issue here, the way that it was communicated created a kind of a, a when 500,000 uh, American children have blood levels above the CDC threshold still. In other words, this is not an isolated Flint thing. It is all about, it's all about placing things in, in context. Mm. Uh, the, everything you mentioned, education, nutrition, uh, violence, all, all of these things, I, I would place violence and, and feeling, secu feeling secure. I mean, being able to feel like you can walk down the street safely. Mm -hmm. uh, things of this sort uh, are, are extremely important. Uh, certainly, the efforts to decrease uh, lead should continue, but I think that the Michigan Department of Human and Health Services have, have shown themselves to be fully capable of doing that, and their good work should continue. Yeah. Certainly, every single lead pipe in Flint should be replaced because if you've broken the China and China shop, well, I guess you've got to pay for the China. So these lead pipes should be replaced. Mm. But in placing things in context, there are many things more, uh, there's th very many other issues of extreme importance to, to uh, for the welfare of children in Flint. What we do not want is for children to have the stigma of being brain damaged and permanently so. And yes, I do believe that uh, this, this will be an ongoing thinking for years. Let me ask this, did you capture enough lead screening to actually be representative of the population of Medicaid patients who are at risk? So uh, in the limitation section of, of the paper, you will note that we're only claiming we captured perhaps 50%. Uh, and the, the way we calculated this was uh, uh, taking CDC data uh, from another publication. We made some mathematical calculations, and that's what we came up with. And we, we the Hurley Hospital captured perhaps 50%. But we think that's a very, a very fair representation. If you look at political polling, uh, for example, you will note uh, that perhaps 2,000 people are used to poll a million in a population and get plus or minus uh, perhaps 1% for an election. Yeah. May not be perfect, but I would I would argue that fifty percent is a do doggone good representation of what we saw in Flint. Got it. And X collection. Mm -hmm. and, and and the actual test for blood lead levels, how far back is it representing lead exposure? So in other words, once you're exposed, how long can you test that corresponding level? There is an actual there is an actual calculation of of, of how one can determine uh, how how slowly it, it decreases over time. Uh, but uh, it really would take about uh, 
10 months from a, from a certain given level for you to for it to actually go down to uh, to zero got it a 10 month period of time so if uh, you know I, I've heard of, of individuals which will go on names saying that oh it was water it, it went to the body it disappeared off of the bone very quickly therefore we uh, uh, underestimated uh, the levels in, uh, in the blood Correct. this is actually rather inaccurate uh, it actually the, the the time it stays in, in blood is actually for a very significant period of time so these these numbers are quite accurate and, and this that's great because that was a criticism uh, that was leveled against the papers uh, methodology but he, inaccurate got it and the other the other uh, potential uh, shortcoming is that infants who are fed formula using water from Flint, you couldn't really capture infant blood levels because that wasn't a typical screening uh, population. So we uh, captured a, a total, our N was a total of 15,817. Not one of those children uh, were completely formula dependent, and therefore one cannot make a statement one way or the other. I will tell you that the, the description of a water formula dependent or mixing up powder formula to a newborn child is a very powerful, a very powerful mental image. Yeah. It's very powerful. However, this also has to be taken in context. We'll go back to Dr. Z when her mother's blood uh, level is 15 and yours is likely 13. And we'll talk about your memories of unleaded gasoline. I too have memories of unleaded gasoline and they're very the sweet smell that, that it had. It was, it was a rather uh, provocative smell. And uh, so uh, the reality of it is, is that A, developing children in utero had far higher level levels than it can possibly conceive of, even postulated during the Flint uh, River switch. Number two, as soon as they are born, yes, they're a formula dependent during the times of unleaded gasoline, but they were also air and oxygen dependent. So they left the hospital and they immediately began breathing the unleaded gasoline from daddy and mommy's station wagon. The leaded gasoline, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's correct. Mm -hmm. So these children uh, had far higher uh, blood lead levels. And I will tell you that in 1976, in a figure and a graph I have behind me, in 1976, a 100%, again, one of these, one of these numbers, but in 1976, and, and this figure will seem a bit astounding, but 100% of United States children had blood lead levels above the reference range of five micrograms per deciliter. Yep. So it's an interesting, evocative image, but let's keep things in context, and that's what this study is all about. You know what, Dr. Gomez? I'm going to use this as a personal excuse now for not reaching my potential of an IQ of 250. Uh, had, had my mother not huffed leaded gasoline out of her station wagon, because I know she likes things that smell sweet. To this day, she loves potpourri, and uh, leaded gasoline was very similar. But again, th this, th this is a, a key point, is that it's all about context, and, and statistics can lie, but they can also give us truth that strips away the emotion and the politics and the charge around it so that we can actually make rational decisions. Uh, and I think our elephants, our unconscious, are very primed to uh, respond to things like cr 
public health crisis, the poisoning of children, et cetera. But if we look at it more with our little rider on top who's hopefully being the rational actor, we can learn something that will actually improve public health and actually focus our resources around lead around the country, but also other issues like we talked about, social determinants of health, uh, schooling, safety, et cetera. And I think your work has certainly opened my eyes, first of all, to having to relearn a lot of statistics that hurts my head because of my own personal lead poisoning in the 70s, and, <laughs> and also kind of brings a perspective that allows us to destigmatize this generation of kids in, in Flint, which is already a stigmatized town. Flint has enough, I don't know if you're familiar with the Netflix series, uh, Flint Town. <laughs> no, I haven't seen it. Netflix series that came out actually fairly recently. You can mm. maybe look at it. It, it makes uh, it's rather rather compelling yet horrific. But uh, mm. so uh, Flint does not need more stigmatization. The Flint children uh, have enough uh, things that we can work on to to help them advance and uh, to help them get a good education. I believe that education is a great equalizer. I believe that uh, we should continue working on Flint, but I believe that the uh, Michigan Department of Human Health Services have been, has been doing simply a fantastic job. And yes, ultimately what you're saying is correct. Let's keep things in context. You know, That's uh, what that, that, and, and I wanna thank you for the work that you've done. I wanna thank you for being on our show. Dr. Hernan Gomez, emergency medicine doctor, pediatrician, internal medicine board certified, toxicologist, also happens to work on the front lines at the hospital treating kids in Flint, Michigan, which is uh, where I think partially why as a, as a student of history and an, and an epidemiologist, a toxicologist, you did this study and it has really opened my eyes and hopefully the eyes of many of our viewers. We'll be asking questions from the ZPAC, we'll be feeding them in and then hopefully we can do a follow-up and, uh, and learn more. That'll be fantastic. If, if I may say one word to your ZPAC, do not do what I did. And once you finish your own residency, perhaps do a fellowship and continue on with your life. <laughs> my pathway to anybody. I just want to make that very clear. The perpetual <laughs> student pathway wasn't really something you would recommend to the ZPEC. Oh, I did. No, I, I, I could do that because I wasn't married. As soon as I got married, the wife said, no, you're not going to do more training. <laughs> so my career as a, as a resident stopped. And so as a permanent resident stopped. Hey, hey, you know what? I'm a hospitalist. I continue as a permanent resident. <laughs> I think, honestly, we all continue as medical students as long as we're physicians. Is that fair? That is fair. Everybody involved. Uh, Dr. Gomez, what a thrill. Thank you. Shout out to U of M, uh, my brother-in-law, James Riddle over there in ID. He's, I'll have him say hi. Yeah. I want to do one quick chatter, if you don't mind. Yeah. To Dr. Riddle of U of M. And a shout out to Dr. Jane, to Dr. John Bogdan from Rutgers University, a nationally known lead toxicologist, a senior author, another senior author, Dr. James Oleski, who was the first person to identify the very transmission of HIV to the fetus. These are both nationally renowned people. These are fantastic uh, individuals. And a, a big shout out to the Medical School of, of Rutgers, New Jersey, where uh, Dr. Bogdan and Oleski are located. Hey, what up Rutgers? The Z-Dogs from Morristown, so I'm neighbors, you yes. know what I'm saying? I love yeah. it. Dr. to Newark. Shout out to Newark. That, yes. Newark. Hey, speaking of which, they had very high lead levels uh, in the early 70s, and I was born in Morristown, so probably my levels were more like 112. I had lead lines. I'm still <laughs> a little bit, uh, a little bit off, but you know what? I'm willing to be stigmatized. Dr. Gomez, <laughs> All right, a real honor, a real pleasure. Thanks again. All right.
So ZPAC, I want to put this all in perspective, okay? What Dr. Gomez kind of has shown us that the blood levels in Flint have been declining over time in a remarkable way. Was uh, the river water situation in Flint a problem with lead? Likely yes. Is there a safe level of lead in children? No. Should we be talking about this? Should the lead situation be cleared up in Flint? Should the government uh, come clean and actually make changes? Should private industry help? Yes, absolutely. Uh, none of that, however, represents necessarily a poisoning crisis which will further stigmatize the children of Flint. We need to put it in context and actually use this to learn and to help public health, not just in Flint, but around the country. We need to understand that nutrition, iron supplementation in some cases, education, parenting, et cetera, can mitigate a lot of the effects. If you look at me, I grew up in a lead environment that was apparently toxic by today's standards, but I turned out marginally okay. There are a lot of factors that go in to our children's health education, wellness, et cetera. And we need to focus on those social determinants of health as well as the toxicology and the other issues and put it all in context. ZPAC, hit like, hit share, spread the word. If you have questions, concerns, thoughts, recommendations for another guest we should get on the show, let us know and we out. One, two, Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithms to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.